Is it? I don't know. Every day is a weekend day, I think now. I think I saw uh, there was an article this week that Spotify released some uh, like listening trends, and they've basically said that every day is a week is a weekend now. <laughs> oh, I was thinking every trends. day is a weekday because I think the last two weekends I was on my laptop working because when you work from home, it feels like you're always at the office. Yeah, I think work-life balance may be a challenge that people are facing right now. And I think it's just something that I've gotten accustomed to is I really, you know, you've got your normal work week and then, you know, based on whatever else is going on, you know, you're probably working on the weekend as well, just like anyone else. So that's right. Um, so we've got a guest today. He is the man, the myth, the legend, Ron Keys, one of our crack IM consultants here at Identropy. Welcome to the show, Ron. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, talking of myths and legends, you guys are myth, myths and legends yourselves. Oh, boy. But, but I am a little bit disappointed in the facilities. The, th- these facilities are frugal. You know, where, are the or- <laughs> where are the audio engineers? Where's the recording studio? <laughs> we don't have a green room, right? There's no pastries. Um, we'll just chalk that up to COVID. How about that? All right, that may be a convenient excuse, but yeah, I was expecting a lot more. Ron, I do want to clarify this. You entered the Identity at the Center podcast, not the Joe Rogan podcast. Okay. We have, we don't have 5 million listeners. We have five listeners. <laughs> right, so the budget is commensurate to, you know, the, to the number of in, listeners. in listenership. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I'll, I'll reset my expectations then. I appreciate that. And so if you want to help Ron and help the show, right, share the show with other people so that we get uh, a pastry budget, that would be nice. <laughs> and Jeff, I, I do have to compliment you on being able to count above 30 now. I've been listening to previous podcasts and th- there, there was some missing, you know, I think it was 28 or 29 and but now everything has been corrected. So congratulations. Yeah. You know what? The first season we had kind of like, we tried to shoot for one every week. And then uh, there was one week where we actually did two. We were at a conference and I thought, okay, we'll maybe break it up into kind of like, you know, the first day of the conference, second day of the conference. So I called it like, I think it was like 14.1 and 14.2. And then it became a real hassle because it was like, all right, well, we're off one now. And then just kind of snowballed. So I just took, Season two, which officially started, I guess, um, you know, this January 2020, I just took the opportunity to just let's renumber it. Let's go back to the number of episodes we have is the number of episodes we've done, because I was also screwing up the introduction because sometimes we record things and then publish a little bit out of order. So I'd say I think there were a couple episodes earlier this year where I was like, oh, this is episode 30. And it was actually like 31 or 29 (laughs) or something like that. So so now, you know peeling back the, you know, the fourth wall here a little bit. I don't even mention what show number this is because I want to have flexibility to make sure that I don't screw it up. <laughs> so <laughs> we end up publishing this, you know, it's Friday. The intention is to publish this on Monday, which is the fourth. Um, you know, hopefully that will, you know, make the cut. And then uh, I don't have to worry about trying to edit out 
you know, some weird thing where it's like, welcome to Anything at the Center podcast. And then you hear like a voiceover with the right number <laughs> right. where it is. Well, you <laughs> so realize that's I'm just a- me making it easy for me. Right. You realize I'm only saying this so that I can prove I'm one of the five listeners. Yeah, you're a hardcore listener. We need to get like a t-shirt or something. <laughs> oh, there, yeah, there's an idea. Yeah. Um, but speaking of conferences, Jeff, um, the, you know, a lot of the conferences or pretty much every conference, it seems like that's upcoming this summer is now going to be um, hosted virtually. And I think that might be a good uh, topic to kind of review on our next podcast, you know, some of the details around that. But I registered this week, um, notice came out that the uh, Coopinger Cole European Identity Conference, EIC, is going to be virtual. And I, it's a free event. So I went out and registered. The only issue is if you are US-based, the times are European-based. So there's the six-hour time difference. So to be on the start of the conference, um, it would start at 3 a.m. Eastern. I don't know. I think I might, I, that's hardcore. You have to be pretty hardcore, but I think I might get up early and try to, you know, have my coffee at like 5 a.m. and and catch most of it. Cool. Let me know how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) I will do that. I will do that, sir. Um, so I'm glad we have Ron on because there's a couple of things we want to get to, I think. But I guess our, our opening question for any guests that we have is the standard, you know, how did you get into identity and access management? So, so Ron, how'd you get into IAM? Well, I'm going to give you the standard answer that uh, previous uh, people have given you. I just fell into it. Um, I came, I have an accent, apparently, yeah, people tell me that. And I came over to the USA in 1995. And one thing I wanted to get into was consulting, some sort of technology consulting. So I applied to an organization, consulting organization based in Boston, yeah, just outside of Boston in Cambridge. And their, their activities were in security operations, developing uh, security plans, IT service management, management consulting, uh, projects that were... <clears throat> large-scale outsourcing projects and integration and standardization of infrastructures, all those types of areas. So I gained a lot of good information there. However, that company did not survive the 2000 downturn and it eventually closed its doors, which was very unfortunate because I learned so much in, in that consulting organization. I then joined a company that was essentially a startup at the time uh, in self-service password management, there was very little. In fact, I don't think there was any sort of self-service password management at the time. So uh, that was their main forte. And then they moved into account provisioning. And then they moved into access certification and role management and so forth. So that was really the starting point of IAM, <clears throat> although it wasn't recognized as IAM at the, at, in the early times, but then it became a separate area of discipline. So fell into it and then moved to uh, one or two other companies, all in the IAM space. And there's also the IGA space as well, but we're focused on IAM here. So that's my history in a nutshell, you know, just falling into it, just gradually went into uh, an IAM product vendor and then moved on from there. I think that lends support to my 
my theory that most people in IEM are are falling into it. Right. What do right. you think, Jim? Yes, yeah, so it's the accidental career choice, um, but it's it's a great space to be in, and no matter how you landed in it. Um, the interesting thing, so we had a our last podcast, uh, we had somebody speaking about managing access management to servers, and I kind of came up through a very technical path and, and made some zigs and zags into program management and things like that, but not everybody starts out very technically. Um, it, Ron is giving an example of how he kind of started his path, and by the way, Ron, you did say you came here to the United States from another country. I don't think you mentioned which country it was. Uh, oh, I'll throw was, it out there. Go that ahead. Was Go ahead. That was Australia. Yeah. And what city were you in? I was in Melbourne. Living and the like, good life. Yeah. And like you, I was very technical Yeah, when I was there. And when I moved to the, to the States to move into consulting, I had to make a conscious decision to get out of the very technical area and move into a consulting type area. Okay. Okay. Well, that's interesting because, um, you know, Jeff, for example, did not come out of a very technical area. He came out of more of the customer support area. Um, but it's interesting that we're all now helping um, companies develop their IM strategy. And so one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the, on the podcast today, Ron, is that you've been working on kind of formalizing a framework that you use to help um, the engagements that you're working on. And when I think of a framework, I'm more or less thinking of kind of a, a checklist or a way of viewing a problem, making sure you you have a, a way to organize it. And as you were describing it to me, I very much saw it in that light as well. But maybe you could give us the two minute elevator pitch on the, the framework that you've been working on and uh, we can dialogue about that. Certainly. So when people talk of a, of a program, you know, what constitutes that program? And IAM is a, is a program you know, or needs to be a program if it's not already a program. And so you do need that structure. How do you formulate in your mind the areas of IAM that need to be considered? And there's, there's two main dimensions for IAM and that's the contextual dimension and the other one is the operational dimension. And the contextual dimension is essentially the static part of it. <clears throat> you know, the organization. What commitment is the organization making to IAM? You know, what is the governance uh, architecture? You know, these are all what I'll call contextual elements because they set the stage or set the scene where IAM is instantiated within the company. And then you have the operational aspect the day-to-day -day operations uh, in, in IAM terms, the lifecycle management of users, uh, audit and reporting, and then the other standard operational aspects, user support and user awareness. And so they're the main elements, you know, the two dimensions, the context and the operational. And then from there down, you, you drill into the specific areas of focus that you want. Is there a particular place that you like to start when it comes to, you know, either implementing or talking about how an organization um, has their framework set up, if they have one at all? Yeah, and I think that's the important thing. So whenever we go into an organization, 
they may be strong in some aspects and, and weaker in others. And depending on the organization, you know, they'll have different aspects that they're strongest in. Um, not everybody wants to implement an IAM program straight up. You know, it's, it's not a thought. But um, once you begin talking to them and explaining it to them, they then get that different perspective, that high level perspective of what they need to start thinking about. And when you put it down in front of them, the, the eyes get wide. You know, they, once you take a look, there, there are a number of areas that uh, need to be focused on. Yeah, I think sometimes the scope is much bigger than maybe people realize in the second and third order of effects, maybe, right, that, that can domino if, if you're not following a plan or at least have a strategy. Exactly. You become very tactical, right? And then, you know, whether it's sooner or later, you tend to not um, support the <laughs> positions maybe that you've taken in the past right, um, right. with some of the stuff that you've worked on. And I'll, I'll give you a recent example. Well, most companies, because I've worked with IAM vendors <clears throat> all the time, and by the way, I, I have only ever worked with vendors. I've never been on the customers, which sometimes I think is a gap, but um, I've always enjoyed working with vendors and and seeing all the different customer environments. But typically, because it's IAM, we get called in for lifecycle management. You know, they want to automate the processes, user processes, onboarding and offboarding. <clears throat> and that's usually the starting point. And it's only once you get in and start talking to the organization that you realize there's gaps in other areas. And one recent example was uh, a company wanted to do lifecycle or is doing lifecycle management. <clears throat> and I wanted to have it automated in a better way. So I asked, where's the termination policy, just so that we can align the, the automation with the termination policy. Well, it turns out there was no uh, approved termination policy to drive the requirements for automation. So then we needed to start talking about policy. And, and so, so one thing can lead to the other, and eventually there's a realization that hey, this thing is a little bit bigger than what I originally thought. And Jim, I suspect you've found the same when you've gone to customers. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a, a couple of thoughts I'm having. You know, one of the um, big items when it comes to developing a strategy is, well, how far do we take it? In other words, if you have, if you're looking at um, provisioning, for example, how much automation is appropriate for our organization? It's easy just to sit down and everything should be automated. You should have roles for everything and just make everything best in class. But that's not always the right answer for every organization. And so what I like, you know, kind of the model that attracts me is kind of a maturity model, understanding where you are today and understanding where you need to get to, to kind of be at a, a level that's appropriate for the organization. And then I think it needs to be supported by that operational model that you're talking about, Ron, which is that there's no finish line in IAM. So you, let's say you define what the appropriate level of automation is for your organization when it comes to user lifecycle management, for example, um, and you have some provisioning. Well, new applications are going to come online. Some applications are going to come offline the automation technology that you implemented is going to need to be upgraded. Um, new regulations are going to come down the pipe. You may find that, you know, you 
didn't get it 100% right in terms of what needed to be automated, you might find that you need to automate a few more things to reduce the burden on your staff. That's just just looking at one aspect, which is automate automation like provisioning for provisioning and deprovisioning, for example. Um, and that's where you have to have an operational plan that provides you the ability to keep up with it. And so often what I see with organizations and kind of, you know, especially large organizations that took on IAM, you know, five to 10 years ago, um, they run into a situation where they implemented what was the best class IAM technology at the time, but didn't, you know, did it with consultants, all the consultants split. They, you know, maybe had some staff, the, the, the staff is no longer there or they got reassigned to other things. And then they haven't upgraded the system in years and people hate it because, and it's not even that maybe the technology is old and it needs to be replaced, but maybe the problem is, is that the technology was implemented and then it wasn't given the proper care and feeding. And so to me, that's what, you know, having a good operational plan is all about, which is how are you going to continue? Well, there's a couple of things that operate. There's, you know, the, the management aspect, but even on the, I'm just talking about like the technology aspect right now, how are you going to maintain this system? And it doesn't mean just rebooting servers when they go down, but how are you going to, you know, do break fix and enhancements and upgrades and, and other, you know, future integrations. Right. So, and, you know, some people refer to IAM as a journey. You know, I prefer to characterize it as a continuum. Uh, because to me, a journey implies a beginning and an end. And as you were saying, there is is no real end to IAM. It's a continually changing area, either in technologies, best practices, regulations, whatever. So that's why the commitment is so important, because it is a journey. It's not just a implement, set and forget type situation. It's something that you do need to run and maintain and modernize over a period of time. I would say from my operations, you know, experience, Jimmy hit the most important thing is, you know, the care and feeding of, of your systems, you know, having been in that position where, you know, budgets are cut or, um, you know, patching isn't done, um, you know, whether it's from a server standpoint or from an application perspective, nothing will kill an awesome software. And this isn't just I am right. Anything unless you keep up with it. So, you know, I think it's incumbent on, if you're going to do IAM, make sure you treat it as that continuum. Uh, I'll throw it out there for my true detective fans. You know, IAM is a flat circle. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're always continuing in some mode of plan, build and run. And that's just the way it's going to be. Um, you know, if you're running it, you're going to have feedback coming from customers of your services, whether they're internal or external, and you're gonna have to make changes. So you need to get those into the plan and then build those out and then release them. And then you're just kind of constantly going around and around. And then something new is gonna come along and you know, throw throw everything, you know, out the window and you know, start fresh from a strategy perspective or from a deployment perspective. So um, you have to be prepared to support it for the long haul for sure. Yes. And um, yeah, Jim, you mentioned companies, you know, some larger companies may have entered into IAM five, 10 years ago. Uh, I, I'm sure that if you look at the vendors who were around in 10 years ago and those companies invested in those vendors, 
how many of those vendors are still around? Yeah, because there's been new entrants into the market, new products and so forth. Uh, so yeah, there needs to be that constant run and maintain care and feeding and modernization. Right, yeah. I mean, I was thinking of a particular client who implemented Oracle identity management and it definitely had a bad reputation within the organization, but I really didn't feel like the you know the the product was the sole reason for that i mean look i'm not gonna to wave the flag for that product but um the situation with this particular client was they planned on all the care and feeding being done by consultants and they had an undertrained level of um you know full-time staff and when that consulting budget got cut kind of the example that jeff gave um the system just didn't get upgraded didn't get enhanced and people really hated it and um it's just not a, a winning model even if you have the best technology out there even if you have the the most up-to-date and the kind of the winner um it it's there's more to it than that here's a side question for you guys how long do you think an im technology should last in an environment just a gut feeling Five years, 10 years? What do you think is a good time frame to say, yeah, we got our money out of that? Hmm. Let's focus on question. one technology. Let's say IGA, for example, Identity Governance Administration, because there's a lot of technologies that can last for years and years. But if you're going to buy an identity governance platform, something like a SailPoint or a Savient or an Omada, um, how, how long do you think you should get out of it? So that is a tough question, right? I'm trying to think <laughs> I know. Through, the, through the history, right? If you'd bought a technology 10 years ago, you surely would have been running it on your own servers. Um, so is the question that you're still with the same vendor um, or is it that you're still running the same implementation? Because, you know, certainly if you bought something, say you bought SailPoint 10 years ago, and you haven't upgraded it, or even if you upgrade the software, but you're still running it on-prem, that's an old model. Now, if you got 10 years out of it, I think most people would say, bravo to you. My feeling is if you get less than five years out of it, there was either a mistake in what you purchased or how you implemented or how you set up your program. I think if you got 10 years out of it, bravo, because that means you pick the winner and you got into the curve in terms of the delivery model at the right time. I mean, you can still buy SailPoint and um, most IGA solutions in a delivery model that's on-prem. That may not even be the case three, four years down the road. Uh, I would expect that, you know, it's going to be limited on-prem options. More and more of it is just either being in the cloud as a software as a service or in a hosted model. So i give you the, the classic um, <laughs> consultant answer, which is it depends. Great. Yeah, Thanks. I, I've, <laughs> I've been thinking as you've been talking, and I think the five to 10 year time frame is probably about it. One of the reasons I say that if, is if something was architected, and there's very few who, is, who are still independent, you know, they either get acquired or, or whatever. But, um, the architecture of 10 years ago, it, when a product is, a, is designed, it's architected based on the technologies at the time, the architecture at the time. 
and then the company will expand and, and add to it. And, and eventually you'll get to the point where some of the newer technologies that are coming out now, like AI, machine learning, uh, uh, risk assessments and so forth, incorporating some of these newer capabilities and newer functions within a product that was architected 10 years ago and using technologies of 10 years ago, it becomes problematic for, for the vendors. Uh, they, they need to start shoehorning functionality into something that maybe should be rewritten and they don't want to rewrite because the investment has already been made and the last thing they want to do is rewrite according to modern modern protocols, modern architectures and, and modern coding types uh, standards. So, so I do see that there is some lifetime where a vendor uh, product may become obsolete. Yeah, I think I agree with both of you. I think it's somewhere within that five to 10 ranges. You've, you've done a good job, less than five. I think so, somewhere there was an error made. Um, and I think, you know, you're seeing some of these vendors also come up with different products, right? They may have started as an on-prem solution and now they're getting into, you know, a delivery model type, you know, SaaS type model, something like that, or managed service. So the, the, the landscape continually changes, but you know, I think that's something that just people need to think about is how long should they be getting out of it, right? These are not 10, 15, 20 plus year, <laughs> you know, things like a, like a mainframe, right? Or some sort of, you know, COBOL database, despite, you know, maybe what our government might be using. <laughs> you know, those those things are are a little long in the tooth, right? And if you want to continue to be competitive, you, you probably need to reevaluate, you know, how long do you want these technologies in there? So, um Digressed a little bit, but I, you know, when it comes back to the operation standpoint, I think that's always important too. Is the assumption is that you're going to keep these products fed, right? And whatever it is, whether it's and it's not just products, I guess it's the program itself, right? That it's adequately resourced from a people and a funding perspective. That you've got the appropriate policies and procedures, and those will change over time as will standards. Um, you know, OpenID didn't exist, you know, until you know, the last couple of years. Same thing for SAML before that, and you know, um, some point blockchain maybe will will make an enterprise appearance. I'm I'm still not convinced on that one, at least at this point. But um, you know, things like self sovereign ID, identity, and and the ways to manage that. There's always going to be something new. So I think as long as you know an organization recognizes that and is adaptable, you know, I think they'll have a, a lot better chance of being successful from a program perspective. Yes, and certainly some of those items you mentioned, like blockchain and bring your own ID. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth watching closely, but the jury is still out as to how they're going to be applied. But um, certainly, definitely worth watching. So we've got I am in context, I am in operation, and I'm calling this Ron's I am program framework. Do we want a better name, or is that how we're going to brand it? <laughs> well, yeah, I might have to trademark it. Should I? <laughs> I feel like we need to we need to like come up with a better term than framework because if we go Ron's IAM program, right? It's RIP, RIP, which maybe isn't so great, but maybe <laughs> if we had some other <laughs> on rival, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Ron's IAM program execution or ripe, right? Is your program ripe? <laughs> yeah, the possibilities yeah. are endless. Uh, no, exactly. Make sure no one steals that domain name. Go register that now. Right. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else that you want to bring up, um, Ron or, or Jim, regarding uh, this program framework around context and operation? 
Well, there was one thing that we were chatting on before we jumped on uh, the recording, and so I wanted to bring that out. And I think, Ron, how would you frame up this discussion? It was like, what is the role of information security and I am kind of talk through that and then I'll give my two cents. Yes, as, as I said earlier, to me, information security is essentially a set of policies to drive the underlying activities, IAM, DLP, SIM, you, know, you, you name it. Um, information security drives those elements. Um, the, the complexity of IAM, and it, uh, let me take a step back. So DLP, a lot of these technologies, DLP, SIM, and so forth, they are technologies for the information security group or the IT group. They don't extend out to the user community. And also they are, they are fairly isolated in that they, they perform a specific purpose in a specific area. IAM has a number of integration points. It, it reaches out, it crosses powers or silos within an organization. It's very, very cross-functional. Um, to do a DLP solution, you put it in and <clears throat> it's not cross-functional. But everything about IAM is cross-functional and therein lies the complexity of IAM. And uh, <clears throat> so IAM is, is one thing that becomes more user visible or more cross-functional and that's where the complexity of IAM. Yeah, I, I mean, Jeff and I get asked on our projects all the time, where does IAM belong? Uh, because I think you brought up the point, which is that it's like, an application or middleware, it's not just security and should information security run it, should uh, DevSops support run it? I don't think there's any one right answer, uh, but one thing it does uh, create is a bit of a, um, a bit of a, um, a challenge that information security's primary purpose is to set the policies and standards for proper cybersecurity for the organization and then to police it. And so then they become in a position with the with that uh, IAM platform that they are not only the ones who are providing the service, but they're also the police over that service. And so that can create a conflict of interest. Um, I think it's, I think that primary purpose just cannot be lost sight of. And I, I think of a great example of that with the shift of everything out to Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure and all the cloud hosting and the move into DevOps and the need to push security um, management out to the folks who are actually performing the operations. Uh, no longer can we just centrally manage all the security because it's moving too fast and it's too widely dispersed. It's just like IT can't do every, you know, can't manage every application, every website, and every piece of technology throughout the organization because a lot of organizations, all they do is is manage technology. Everything, everything that they do, their product is technology. So. IT can't be the only ones who manage technology. The business has to, at some level, manage technologies. But going back to this DevOps model is that it's moving so fast, developers have to 
<clears throat> integrate security into their processes. Infrastructure teams have to integrate security into their processes and information security needs to be the police overseeing that. You've got to insist on the tools that give them the visibility in the, in the means that they'll understand to be able to consume that data because there's so much security data being produced by organizations these days. So that can't be lost sight of. And information security may have a delivery function, right? It may be a service provider in many ways, but it can create a conflict of interest. So um, I still see, I would say most organizations, IAM is still in the umbrella of information security. I think that's okay, but you just have to understand that it has the potential for conflict of interest and you should have a strategy around that, which should be that it's not the same individuals who are responsible for delivering a service, <clears throat> providing the service to the organization and then policing that service. Right, and, and I think you're exactly right about the speed of things in the cloud and DevOps. And I, I think it's worthy of another discussion of how IAM is going to uh, support and accommodate that new world because um, it is moving very, very fast. And there are a lot of other security implications. And I think the traditional management through, uh, the management through traditional IAM products um, may not keep, or is currently not keeping up with the DevOps and the security required in the cloud, you know, AWS and all these, all these other. Um, and there's some interesting products out there that have popped up over the last few years to help with that. Things like HashiCorp and, Cloud Knox is one that uh, we recently looked at that I thought was really good. So right. um, I think it's 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 an evolution and it's part of that, again, that flat circle <laughs> continuum of, you know, the cycle of improvements and being able to adapt with it. Yes, right. it is. At the end of the day, I feel like someone has to own it. That's yes. that's my main requirement. Someone owns right. it. <laughs> and it's going to be interesting to watch all these niche products like, you know, Cloud Knox and so forth and uh, how the traditional IAM vendors uh, work you know, is there going to be consolidation of the industry incorporation of capabilities <clears throat> or products into traditional vendors and so it's going to be interesting to watch how the industry emerges over time on that one yeah there's been a lot of consolidation in the last few years and i would imagine that you know as the the big behemoths continue to grow <laughs> right right, right. continue to, to look to acquire areas that that they feel like are strategic to their growth so yeah. um okay uh, Ron or Jim, anything else that you guys want to bring up before we uh, wrap it up for this week? I'm good. I'm ready to wrap it up and start the weekend. Yeah. Yes. You guys I'm are ready. opening up this weekend. <laughs> they are. I'm in Massachusetts. We're still closed down. So. Yep. Same here. In the Chicago area, we're, we're closed down to at least the end of May. Jim's in Georgia, which is opening up, if it hasn't already, soon, right? Yeah, so um, you can get a haircut if you can get an appointment. But I mean, all the so what gets underreported, Jeff, is all the rules that exist within. You know, yes, you can have table seating at a restaurant. Most restaurants are, do not have table seating. The reason is is that the rules around it are so um, strict in terms of everybody needs to wear masks and. The waiters and stuff can't touch food. And when it comes to, um, you know, the 
the uh, the hair cutting that only so many people can be within the building at a certain time. So it, mm-hmm. it's not as open as maybe people think. Yeah, the social distancing thing I think is is really difficult to enforce. So it'll be curious to see how how the little experiment plays out. Um, I think there's good news for everybody though is Domino's is putting a sticker on their pizza boxes so you know if it's been tampered with. So. If anything positive has come out of this, uh, the recent commercial indicates that once it comes out of the oven, no human touches it. So I guess yeah, that's I'm a more good thing. A, I'm more of a Little Caesars guy myself. Or I like oh, my, you're my local places are much better. Right. Or make your own, right? Absolutely. Well, that's pretty much been the case lately. Yeah. And I'm seeing um, Jim as a test case for opening right. up. Yeah, so hey, we, you know we're going to be watching Jim very closely. <laughs> somebody has somebody has to do it we're gonna put a webcam right on jim and just watch for symptoms <laughs> <laughs> um all right well i think that's a good spot we'll leave it for this week um appreciate everyone out there listening um want to thank ron for for helping out with this episode and joining us it's always great hope to have you back here soon and uh want folks to stay happy and healthy and we'll talk to you all in the next one listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.